0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community.
1: As you've no doubt figured out by now, I'm particularly interested in clever ways to generate electrical power. Just a few episodes ago, I talked about the amazing potential of nano-diamond power cells. Those are the ones that really do take a licking and keep on ticking. They supply power for decades, if not centuries. Well, something else grabbed my attention recently. This idea seems a little absurd at first glance. But there are well-heeled investors apparently willing to sink a large amount of money into it. And sink may be the operative word. A Scottish company called Gravitricity has broken new ground on a demonstrator facility for a creative system that stores energy in the form of gravity, if you can call it that, by lifting and dropping huge weights. Really. Imagine this. If you coil a spring, you're loading it with potential energy. And that's released when you let it go, right? Gravitricity works on the same basic principle, except in this case the springs are 500 to 5,000 ton weights. When held up in the air by powerful cables and winches, these weights store large amounts of potential energy. When that energy is needed, they can be lowered down a mine shaft to spin the winch, which is connected to a generator which feeds electricity into the grid. Gravitricity says that these units could have peak power outputs between 1 and 20 megawatts and function for up to 50 years with no loss of performance. The system can quickly release its power payload in as little as 15 minutes or slow it down to last up to 8 hours, all depending on how fast they allow those weights to drop. To recharge this giant mechanical battery, electricity from renewable sources power the winches to lift the weights back to the top. So if you're using electricity, though, to raise the weights back to the top, how efficient can this system really be? Well, according to Gravitricity, their system has an efficiency between 80 and 90 percent. Ultimately, this kind of system should be able to store energy at a lower cost than other grid-scale energy storage systems, such as Tesla's huge lithium-ion battery that they've set up in Australia. The concept sounds very familiar to one I read about a couple of years ago called Energy Vault, and it used a crane to hoist concrete blocks onto a tower. Gravitricity seems to be further ahead in development compared to Energy Vault at this point. The company is now in the early stages of constructing a demonstrator facility to test out the concept just next year. The tower will stand 52 feet tall, lifting and dropping two 25-ton weights in order to generate... 250 kilowatts of power. The custom-built winches and the control system are being constructed by Hughesman Company in the Czech Republic, and Kelvin Power is building the lattice tower in Leicester, England. The separate pieces will then be shipped to a port near Edinburgh for construction of the demonstrator. They plan to start testing next spring, and assuming all goes as planned, Gravitricity says they may have a full-scale 4-megawatt project up and running by the end of the year. I'm speaking with Bob Allison, WB1 GCM, and as you probably know by now, Bob is the assistant manager of the ARRL Laboratory, and he is the guru when it comes to QST product review testing. Good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon, Steve. One of the things I miss about not being at ARRL headquarters is walking into your office and seeing your amazing little collection of uh, heath kit transceivers and other rigs oh yes well, mm-hmm. plus the um, the museum the museum annex as I call it uh, next to the lab there lovely
2: lovely museum filled with uh, vintage transceivers and uh, transmitter receiver pairs uh, throughout the history of amateur radio we have a nice display room right off right off the AR laboratory
1: one of these days Bob the COVID pandemic will cease and people will be able to once again come and tour headquarters and see the museum i hope
2: well it's one of the most popular attractions of arrl headquarters I always get positive feedback and lots of oohs and ahs when people walk through the museum room it's a display of uh, actually the evolution of amateur radio equipment and if if somebody uh, walks out of that room and has a warm fuzzy feeling inside because it reminded them of their youth, then we've done our job.
1: Well, you've got us off to a perfect start, Bob, reminding us of our youth. You know how many hams, and I will admit to doing this myself, will occasionally wax nostalgic about, oh, the, I don't know, pick one, the Collins 75A4. Now, they don't make radios like that anymore. But, Bob, Really? That's not true, is it?
2: Well, um, the Collin 75A4, which came out about 1955, was really considered a state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line technology. It was the first receiver specifically designed for a single sideband operation for the radio amateur. But the dynamic ranges of that receiver were not really that high as compared to today's radios. So the performance was pretty good for its time, but uh, it does not live up to today's uh, performance of modern transceivers.
1: Well, that's the key. How do you think, Bob, since you've tested so many radios over the years, how do you rate vintage transceivers compared to modern day rigs? First off, the look is certainly different.
2: And the look is a lot more modernized and uh, a little bit more ergonomically friendly, hopefully. So obviously the look has changed quite a bit. The insides, of course, have changed. The most notable change uh, today that we see is in the receiver side, uh, especially, most notably uh, software-defined radios, whereas the um, architecture is entirely digital. Right after the A to D converter uh, and right up to the speaker, it's it's, um, it's all digital. Um, So we can manipulate the signal in different ways. And um, the dynamic ranges, of the software-defined receivers and transceivers are getting up there. They're quite high. Uh, We have an example of the $1,000 transceiver, the ICOM IC7300. Now, that uh, transceiver, fairly modern. It came out about four, four four-and-a-half years ago or so. But um, that has a very, very high uh, dynamic range of... uh, about 100 dB is the lowest dynamic range at two kilohertz spacing out of the three dynamic ranges that we measure. We measure 2 tone uh, third-order IMD dynamic range, uh, blocking dynamic range, and something called reciprocal mixing dynamic range. So those dynamic ranges are published in QST. And if you look at the two kilohertz spacing dynamic ranges and, and look at the lowest dynamic range out of the three that we test and that we publish. That's the dynamic range of the receiver. Now, for comparison's sake, we started doing our current testing methods in 2007. So if you want to look at how transceivers have progressed since 2007, there's a couple ways to do that. First off is go to our website, of course. That's arrl.org forward slash test-results-summary-table. You can scroll down, and at the very bottom, there's a link. You can click and get a PDF, and you can see a uh, a list of the um, performance parameters of transceivers tested from 2007 to date. Also, uh, Rob Sherwood has a great list of uh, performance parameters, old and new radios, that you can look at. So, Sherwood Engineering uh, is uh, sherweng, S H E R W E N G dot com forward slash table dot HTML. And that'll bring you up to a table of performance parameters of radios through time. Some of uh, old timers would be familiar with. In fact, Rob put down the KWM 380, Collins' last great amateur radio transceiver, it came out in the early 80s. So, Steve, what do you think the lowest dynamic range would be for that KWM380?
1: Oh, I would have no idea.
2: Well, it's 64 dB. Really? And that's a top-of-the-line transceiver. So now you can take um, today's top-of-the-line transceiver. I'll just pull out the uh, the Yaesu FTDX101D, and the receiver in that 2 kilohertz spacing. You're looking at 109. I measured 109. Rob Sherwood measured 110 DB of dynamic range. That's that's by the way, is the lowest dynamic range of that receiver. And that's the best receiver of any transceiver on the market today so far as measured in AR laboratory and also by Rob Sherwood. So you have that as compared to 40 years ago with the Collins KWM three eighty, and the lowest dynamic range is sixty-four. Okay, so that's quite a difference. That's a dramatic difference. Collins R390 receiver, that was the state-of-the-art best receiver, uh, at least one of the best receivers of the 1950s. And that 2 kilohertz spacing uh, dynamic range is 79 dB. And that's according to Rob Sherwood's uh, test results. Mind you, we have not tested any Collins R390As in the laboratory lately. (laughs) So um, basically what I'm saying is um, you see a great increase of performance of amateur radio these days. Uh, as compared to the old radios. I mean, you might have an old radio and you might be very happy with it if you have a wire dipole antenna and you don't want to, uh, and you don't have that um, large voltage at the antenna jack that you would with a very, very large antenna system on top of a tower. Stacked multibanders on 20 meters, for instance, will generate uh, and induce a lot of voltage onto that antenna jack, that signal-level voltage. Um, and um, that can cause um, all sorts of unwanted effects in receivers if the receiver signal strengths are too strong. So um, basically, um, you can turn on the attenuator, of course, but um, uh, you really want a really top-performing transceiver these days. If you have a really good antenna system and you want to be a competitive DX operator or serious contester, you'd like a modern radio with high
1: dynamic ranges.
2: If you're a casual operator, an older uh, transceiver will suffice, but maybe it's time to upgrade anyway.
1: Hmm? Well, you know, when it comes to older transceivers, Bob, of course, we all look back nostalgically. We all look at the past through rose-colored glasses, and I have a brief story to tell you about that Uh, a cautionary tale, I guess. A number of years ago, uh, not that many years ago, uh, I guess two or three years ago, I was on eBay and I happened to see for sale a Tentec Power Mic PM3A transceiver. And it was in beautiful mint condition. And I thought, I've got to have this thing because that was one of my first radios when I was a novice back in the early 1970s. So I went into the bidding war and by golly, I won it. Well, it arrived. It looked every bit as beautiful as it did in the photographs. I applied the voltage, fired it up, and Bob, (laughs) I couldn't believe what it, Awful little radio it really was, <laughs> and, uh, I I thought to myself, "Wow, this receiver in particular is terrible." What was I thinking? But back then it was fine.
2: Well, um, example, my first amateur radio receiver really was a communications receiver. It was a realistic Radio Shack realistic DX one hundred and fifty B. the um, The receiver was wider than a barn door. To put it mildly, so as a novice, and the novice bands were very crowded in the mid-1970s, you'd get on, and there'd be about five or six stations seemingly on the exact same frequency, all slightly off frequency from each other. And it was my job to pick out the one that was talking to me. (laughs) So actually, the adversity of having um, not the greatest receiver, at least not a very selective one, worked out in my favor because it made me a better operator.
1: (laughs) So the good old days weren't really always good, right? No,
2: no. Not unless you, you had a good money for a decent receiver like a Collins or maybe a good Helicrafters. There were some good brands out there. Drake was a good brand. But again, compared to today's transceivers, um, the performance is much better today. And also the value is so much incredibly better today. Let's go back to um, let's go back to the Kenwood TS520S. I'm sure many people listening would remember that radio. It was probably the breakout transceiver of the nineteen seventies. And today's money though. Uh if you wanted to buy that exact same radio in today's money, if you can go back then, but you're looking at about $2,650 of today's money is that radio cost back in, in the mid-1970s. And you got 80, 40, 20, 15, and 10, single-side band and CW were the only modes. And it was only amateur band only. Now today For just about $1,000, a little over, there's the ICOM. I'm not doing a commercial. This is not an endorsement. Only as an example, the ICOM IC7300 is a $1,000 radio. And look at the performance parameters. It'll run circles around anything in its price class prior. And so um, that's the software-defined technology, the digital technology that's built into that radio that allows the lower price but yet the high performance. So um, today for that brand new ham, what they're getting, the value of the radio besides the performance parameters, now you also have AM, FM, digital, besides single sideband and CW, and you have a, a pan adapter scope, you have a DSP, D- digital signal processing, and uh, amazing what you can pull out uh, and try to just tune out that, tune in that one signal that you're trying to hear, you can do it with a radio like that, whereas back in the old days, it was a challenge just getting that one signal that you wanted to hear and uh, block out everybody else. It was very challenging. But today, much easier, much easier to uh, to
1: manipulate uh, and, and, and operate. So since you've been talking uh, about the ICOM IC7300, just speculating, if <laughs> if time travel were possible, Bob, and you were able to take – an IC7300 back to, let's say, 1979 and sit it on a bench next to, say, a Drake TR7 transceiver? Mm -hmm. Would the users of that day notice the difference between the two?
2: It all depends whether you have a a really, really good antenna system. I mean, a really one that's going to induce a lot of uh, uh, signal voltage into the antenna jack. And if that's the case, uh, the ICOM 7300 in, in many ways will outperform the older 41-year-old radio. But um, the selectivity on the front end of the Drake is just a little bit better on the on the wideband picture, as you could say. Now mind you, you have a, a relatively inexpensive, uh, we'll call it an entry-level le- uh, radio. It doesn't have a, a pre-selector built into it for that price. But if you go up in price in the icons up to the mid-range, when you tune around and you change bands, they hear click, 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 the, the the filtering change. You get a little bit better uh, selective uh, selectivity in the front end to black out all the other whole entire shortwave band, but try to get a chunk of the HF spectrum uh, to pass through into the next stages of the radio. In other words, you get... All of the energy hitting the receiver from your antenna. Whereas when you have a, a preselector at the front end, you're narrowing that energy down just to so a, a range of frequency, so you, you're not overloading your receiver. Icom may overload, but in a very spectrally dense environment, if you're on top of a mountain where there's a lot of radio services, the Icom might get overloaded, whereas maybe the Drake may not. It's possible.
1: You'd have to see. Well, you know, Bob, the Drake back then, the TR7, that was considered a Cadillac transceiver. It was not cheap, and it was definitely not considered a radio for a beginner unless you had the kind of money available that you could afford one.
2: That's correct, and I specifically remember when that radio came out, and there were not a lot of them actually on the air at that point. And unfortunately, it just wasn't enough for Drake to keep going. Uh, too 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 long after that, they they, they uh, left the amateur market.
1: That's true. Well, Bob, you've given a very good comparison, I think, uh, that maybe maybe will help dial back some of the nostalgia. Not that nostalgia is a bad thing. I I enjoy talking about radios of the past, just like you do. But you know, when you're when you're looking strictly at performance for what you need today it may not be necessarily fair to compare those radios to the kings of the past, you know, the 7584s and whatnot.
2: True. Um, Some people, though, really hold on to their their, uh, radios, their receivers, or their older transceivers because they really feel as though that the radio performs the best. Maybe the audio comes clearly out of the speaker, but when it comes to actual dynamic ranges, those older transceivers... Uh, really can't compare. And again, I, I must emphasize, look at the flexibility that you get today. You get a lot more amateur bands. You get general coverage receiver. Some transceivers cover HF and all the way up to two meters or even 70 centimeters. And to think of having a very small radio cover 160 through 70 centimeters is quite remarkable. You need literally a room full of equipment in the old days whereas it's just a small, small little insignificant space that you take up with such a transceiver today.
1: Absolutely right. Well,
0: thank you very much, Bob. You're welcome. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic At ARRL.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.